Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Hi guys, how's everybody doing today? Man, it's a good day to be your guest preacher. We got a baptism. We got our high school group with us today. For the first time in big church, welcome to big church. Uh, Student ministry life is the best life, so I'm super glad to be here. I started my ministry in student ministry, and I still like just love high schoolers. I actually have my own youth group right now because I have three of my own teenagers, so that's basically where I focus my discipleship right now. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and I'm really, really glad to get to be with you guys to bring the message. Um, I don't know how 2021 has been for you, but actually I do. Is it the same here? as it is in Richmond. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we're all, we're all in the same dumpster fire together. I thought so. 2021, man, after 2020, it's been just a time really of so much disruption, right, in our life. So many things, just rhythms, uncertainty, decisions that are hard to make. I mean, we're all going through that together, truly. And I feel like this is also an opportunity for us to kind of reset and return to the basics. My family, just like you guys have been through all of it, the online school, the remote school, the hybrid school, the where, what are we doing and how are we doing it? It's been a big year of change for us too because we have three teenagers and our oldest went to college just a few weeks ago. We moved into the city, out from the suburbs into the city. And then on top of all that, I just became like a middle school mom stereotype type when I tore my ACL skiing with one of my teenagers, like just your standard weekend warrior type experience. And I don't know if you've torn your ACL, we can like compare scars later, but it's terrible. It's really not good when you do it because not only is it like a terrible injury and then you have a surgery, but it takes so long to rehab and to recover and to get back to like your athletic pursuits. So for the last several months, I've been in PT and um, I've learned a lot in physical therapy and And the other day, it was like a few months ago, as I was getting better and I was able to walk normal and kind of move around normally, but then my PT was like, hey, you're still just like falling down the stairs when you go down the stairs. So I need you, I was like, what? He's like, you're really, literally you're using nothing. You're just propelling yourself down the stairs with like no muscle at all. And he said, I'm gonna need you to do what we like to call in PT, some micro movements. And what I need you to do is I actually need you to start practicing just a two-inch movement of your knee because that micro-movement, that two-inch movement, is actually the thing on which everything else is built. Even though you think that you should be taking big stairs, it's actually that small movement, that basic fundamental that will sort of inform the whole rest of the way that your recovery plays out. And then I was like, thank you, Clark, for this incredible sermon illustration. Because I want to talk about micro-movements today. Because I thought about that idea of what feels like big stuff, but in reality, it's the little stuff. It's the small movements. It's the fundamentals. It's the basics. And particularly in a time that is so disruptive, we have an opportunity as followers of Christ, as believers, to start asking the question, what are the basics? 
What is the good news in my life? Not just the first time that I said yes to Jesus as we heard that profession of faith during baptism, but also right now in my life. Whether I've been not sure if I'm following Jesus yet or I've been following Jesus for 40 or 50 years, what are those basics that we can return to, that we can be rooted and grounded in, in a time like no other, a time of true shifting sands? A lot of my job, I travel and I get to teach and I want you to know that every congregation I've been to, the teams that I work with, there's not one person that I know who has not experienced a significant rift of some kind in their family life, in their friendships, in their neighborhood, in their workplace for all manner of reasons. All of us right now are in this season of being like, what does this really look like to embody love in the world, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ together. So I wanna propose this idea to you and bring you to scripture to lay it out. And this is the micro movement that I want to talk about today. How Jesus relates to us shows us how to relate to one another. There's a basic thought. How Jesus relates to us shows us how to relate to one another. I wanna take you to where this is in scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Now, I don't know. I have, I, Clifton was real into this. So I want to see if you guys can do this. I'm going to say one part. I don't know if this is a call and response congregation, but we're going to be today, okay? Because I want you to remember this. So I'm going to say whoever claims to live in him, and I want you guys to say must live as Jesus lived, okay? So whoever claims to live in him. One more time. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived basic. That's it. Like you can just put that in your mind and be like, what am I doing here today? (laughs) What is my life about? Okay. If I'm claiming to live in him, my responsibility, my, my vision, my perspective is I need to figure out in this modern day life, in the world that I'm living in, what does it look like to live as Jesus lived? John chapter one says this, verse 12, yet all who receive him, To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That word right is like adoption language. It's as if we're in the courtroom and there is an adoption taking place. And when we receive Christ and believe in him, our identity shifts. We leave our natural family. We leave our biological family and we join this spiritual family in an adoption that is sealed for the day of redemption and it doesn't go away. And in this verse, we see, okay, your identity is reset. You're going to be born into this new family, born into this new way of living. I want you to hear that because everything else that we talk about comes out of that place. If that place isn't in your heart, then the rest of it just sounds like behavior modification. And this is like a how to give a good life, like how to live a good life sermon. And we're not doing how to live a good life sermons. We're doing, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God and it redefines who we are. Now, the rest of our life, we have the honor and the privilege of figuring out what that's gonna look like and how I'm going to live into that identity. Verse 13, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The message version says, Jesus put on skin and moved into the neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Here's where I want to focus, full of grace and truth. If Jesus has a business card full of grace and truth is under it. If he had an Instagram handle, he'd be like, this is who I am. 
The definition of the way that Jesus embodies life and moves through life is full of grace and truth. So I want to give you three definitions. If you're a note taker, this is the moment to like tune in because this is super important to the rest of the message. Three words in this phrase that I want to define. The first one is grace. And here's what I wrote. The boundaryless, meaning no boundaries at all. The boundaryless, unmerited, undeserved love of God. That is always the definition of grace. Grace never has boundaries. Grace is never about the behavior you bring. Grace is never about what you've done or not done. Grace is actually 0% about you and 100% about Jesus. And that is really good news. It means no matter where you've been, no matter where you've come from, no matter where you're going, grace doesn't change for you. It is an unmerited, undeserved, boundaryless experience of the love of God. Now, truth. Here's a definition of truth from scripture that I sort of wrote for us today. The reality of things as God sees them, not as I see them. There's a lot of definitions of truth out there right now, so I want to make sure that we know the scriptural definition of truth. When Jesus talks about truth, he's talking about the reality of things as he sees them, not as we see them. Not our reality, but his reality. We don't have to like his reality, But we're acknowledging that when Jesus talks about truth, he's talking about the reality as God sets it. And then finally, full means to abound. It doesn't mean balanced. Most of us, when we think about grace and truth in our own heart, if you've ever thought about that, we think of it as like a seesaw. We're like, uh, sometimes I'm a little more full of truth kind of person, you know, less grace. Or maybe like, I really like grace, but I don't really like challenge. I really like peace and harmony and it feels this way. But this is, seesaw is not the way that Jesus operates. Full means that Jesus is abounding in both. I want you to imagine two arrows pointing up and this is full of grace and this is full of truth. And at the intersection, at the apex of grace and truth is love, real love, full love, this kind of love that Jesus brings to us. So why does this matter? Why do we need to care about this? Well, It seems like we've just sort of like moved into this idea that grace and truth in my relationships looks like me being accepted, but acceptance isn't about that identity piece. It's not just about that. It means that my truth must be your truth. And I think that ends up looking like, hey, my views, my perspectives, my opinions, my preferences are all on par with ultimate reality. And if you deny my views, my preferences, my opinions, then you're denying me. And guess what, guys? I'm not talking about the people out there. I'm talking about the people in here. This is, this is a reality of the culture that we've been living in. And this isn't just about the last 18 months. This is a, a move that's been happening in our culture over the past 40 or 50 years. There was a book written by Bill Bishop called The Big Sort. And stick with me for a moment in this little, this little analogy, okay? So in 1976, if you lived in a county only 25% of Americans lived in a county where the president had a landslide victory. What that means is that the person to the right of you, the person to the left of you, the person in front of you, the person behind you, only one or two of them probably voted the way you voted. By 2016, 80% of Americans lived in a county with a landslide victory for one presidential candidate. Which means now, the person to the right of me, left of me, front and back of me, most of them voted the way that I did. Now, why does that matter? Because we're living in a culture that keeps sorting itself around preferences. We're we're in it too. 
And, and as we sort, it feels like this idea of like transactional life has been exchanged. We're having transactional life instead of connection life. And honestly, like logically, it seems like if we sorted ourselves, that would be better, right? Like maybe that'd be better. We just all agree. But it hasn't been better. It hasn't been better at all. We've experienced unprecedented amounts of anxiety, isolation, loneliness, discouragement, depression, despair. The very thing of like, hey, if I surround myself with people like me that you would think works for connection doesn't work at all. And we live in this world that says, that's what my truth is, and yet somehow I don't feel that same kind of love. Instead of approaching life from a place of mutual vulnerability and humility, we may approach it as a battleground, surrounding myself with people who think like me, who look like me, who act like me, who blame like me, who fear like me, so that I can feel less isolated and alone, but it's not actually working. So how do we know if we're living in that lonely place? Here's a couple of things that I've written out of some work that I've done. First, you feel more fear than love. Second, you sometimes view others with suspicion or as a threat to your own standing or security. A little closer to home, you have no relationships or very few where someone can challenge your behavior and still offer you love and relationship. You have no relationships or very few where there is mutual submission. And what I mean by that is compromise, consensus, a third way of moving forward. You desire to feel more connected, understood, or accepted, but you don't know how to get there. So what I want to propose that Jesus teaches us through his life that we're going to see in a second with his, um, these interactions with his disciple Peter is that Jesus, being full of grace and truth, offers us acceptance but also challenges behavior. And he does them both. He can be full of both of that. And because he's called us, whoever lives, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Because he's calling us to that, our understanding of the way that Jesus relates to us will translate to our understanding of the way that he is calling us to relate to one another. This need for connection is as important for human beings as food, water, shelter. Psychology is catching up to what we know from the gospels. This idea of connections, actually not having connections in your life has been correlated to being as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Not having connections is more dangerous than obesity or high blood pressure. A recent New York Times article actually said this, those with close social ties and unhealthy lifestyles lived longer than those with bad social ties and healthy lifestyles. So the moral of the story is go eat ice cream with your friends. It's better for you. <laughs> Or I know, like, I know, like, a lot, I'm probably not supposed to say this, but I'll just, I don't work here. Or bourbon. I mean, you guys love bourbon here. That's very clear from the airport. I, I mean, it was a very clear message. That was, I was, it was like, I got it. Message received. So whatever that is, it's so interesting that in this age of outrage, what we need is connection. And what connection looks like is not a transaction where because we share all the same preferences, that kind of makes us feel like we're connected. It's real connection. It's knowing each other on a heart level, on a soul level. And Jesus teaches us this through his relationships here on earth. So we're going to look at three stories. This is Bible time. I'm going to tell you a few stories from Peter's life 
I'll give you the references if you guys wanna go read them later, but I'm gonna put these together as an example of how Jesus interacts with us. The first is in Luke chapter five. This is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He's just starting to call his disciples. People are following him. He is like teaching. There's a little crowd right away. And so he's at this spot and he asks these fishermen if he can go get out in their boat so that the crowd can like be on the shore and listen to him teach and he can be out a little bit so they can hear him. This is Luke chapter five, picking up in verse four. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, this is Simon Peter, who's on the boat, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, Peter's the fisherman. If you remember your Bible stories, Jesus is the carpenter. Peter's the actual professional fisherman. And in verse five, Simon answers, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. I can almost hear the eye roll through this next moment, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now, if you were a professional fisherman in that time, I don't know a lot about it, but I do know that the nets would be super heavy because they'd be wet. They've got to be tired and hungry. They've been working all night. They haven't caught anything. They would pull those nets up and they would mend and dry their nets during the day. So they've already pulled the nets up. So he's like, all right, I guess we'll put the nets back down. They put the nets down. And they catch so much fish, like it just almost swamps the boat. They've got to call their partners to bring their boat over and put fish in their boat. And both boats are starting to sink because that's how much fish they caught. Now, I am no fisherman, but I got some boys who like to fish. And let me tell you, it is an infrequent occasion that even one fish comes on the line. And that's why I think people tell fish stories because they're like, I spent a lot of time out there. That fish has got to be bigger than it actually was. So can you imagine being a professional fisherman and having this experience happen to you? Picking up the story in verse eight. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus's knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, why in the world was Jesus's response to say, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. I don't know if you guys have ever had an experience of wonder. I feel like wonder is kind of missing from our world right now. An experience where either you're just like in a moment of worship and you just, you, you recognize your smallness, or maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon or been on a mountaintop and looked out at a vista, or you've been in your backyard and you've looked at the stars, the moon's incredible, and you just, you feel this sense of the awe of creation and of your small place within it. And I wonder if Peter, knowing he had just rolled his eyes about this ordinary moment he was in, and he has this extraordinary encounter with the living God. And if it just like came to him and he realized, like, I can't even be close to this. This is so generous and so gracious and so much, so extra that I don't even feel like I can be here. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'll make you a fisher of men. And then to Peter's credit, he gets right up and follows Jesus. Next story is a little bit later in the narrative in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus has been teaching. He's been doing miracles. He's causing a stir for sure. People are astonished by Jesus about the way that he taught. He's like punctuating his teaching with these miracles. The power structures of the day are getting very, very troubled by all of this. A lot of conflict, a lot of turbulence around Jesus. People are wondering who Jesus is. They're confused about who he is. And so he's talking to his disciples. He's like, hey, who do people say that I am? And they're like, some people think you're John the Baptist, like a reincarnated, like a prophet, a teacher. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And here we see Peter again answering, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. And I'm gonna tell you, this was a good day in Peter's career as a disciple. <laughs> this is a mountaintop experience because he's the first one to declare what all of them were probably thinking. You're it, you're the chosen one that, that was prophesied about in our, in our Old Testament that we have. They had those writings at that time. So like, he's like saying, you are, you're it. And Jesus turns to him and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. And he goes on, he's like, hey, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. I mean, if I was Peter, I'd be like, yeah, like that is a big moment in front of your peers to be like, yes. And then the story takes like a sharp left turn, like not the kind of left turn that like a cruise ship takes, but like a jet ski turn. Because in verse 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to tell his disciples that he would go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and that he would be killed. From that moment on, Jesus starts to be real clear about where this ministry is going. He says he's gonna be killed and raised to life. And not three verses after Jesus has declared who Peter is, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but the concerns of men. Now, I don't know what kind of bad day you've ever had at work. But I doubt it was a day where your boss said, get behind me, Satan. That is not a good day, really, for anyone. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, like, can you imagine being Peter? And it just, you just, like, had all of this, like, yes, like, I'm abounding. God's abounding. Jesus is abounding in grace to me. I am in. And then Peter oversteps. And because Jesus abounds in truth, he will call the truth out. And he's like, the truth is that God has set reality. And I am living into the reality God set. And if you are not for me, you are against me. Now, for those of us who've experienced a challenge in our relationships, when we hear something like this, I'm thinking Peter would be like this. I'm gonna get really behind you, like way behind you. Because most of us, when we experience challenge in relationships, we experience distance. We experience withdrawal of relationship. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is basically like, get behind me, Satan. Now get beside me. Let's keep going. And he stays in relationship with him. When I was in student ministry, there was like this thing that would happen that was incredible when kids would come to faith. And it, they, they wouldn't come to faith because necessarily they heard like an awesome message or they loved the games. It was always like a volunteer leader who was in a relationship with a student. And then that student inevitably messes up in some way. They're a jerk. They have a hard weekend, whatever. Something happens. And that volunteer still likes them. And it's still near them. It's still next to him. And I've seen heart transformation happen in students in that moment that when they recognize grace means that you still extend relationship to me no matter what. And I think here in this moment where Jesus is challenging Peter, but then he says, get on beside me. Let's keep going. We see Jesus modeling what this relationship can really look like. In our final vignette for today, we're in John, actually in Luke first for a minute. This is right near the end of Jesus' life. He's with his friends, the disciples. They're at a meal together. And Jesus is being very clear with them about how it's going to be. And he says, hey, you guys are all going to disown me. And Peter, being Peter, was like, not me, Lord, not me. I would never disown you. And so Jesus says to him, I'm telling you, Peter, before the rooster crows this morning, you will have already disowned me three times. 
And then the story just, it gets so chaotic and so confusing. Everything about it is wrong. Like this is a completely unjust arrest, a completely ridiculous trial. They're not following any of the protocols. All this stuff is happening in the middle of the night into the early morning with Jesus. He's being beaten. He's being mocked. He's been arrested for something he hasn't done. It's crazy. And Peter is following at a distance, like watching all of this happen. And we see these encounters with Peter. Someone hears and turns to him and is like, hey, aren't you, aren't you one of those guys with Jesus? And he's like, no, no, I'm not with Jesus. And then like a little bit later, they're like, wait, is that, is that a Galilean accent? Are you from Galilee? Aren't you one of those disciples? No, no. And then, but then he like has to add a curse word to it. He's like, the final time, he's like, like blank, no, I'm not with Jesus. And then in maybe like one of the most poignant places in all of scripture, it says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Now guys, we know the end of the story. We know the good news. But in this moment, what I want you to recognize is this was Peter's last experience with Jesus before he died. Like this is how it was left was this moment where Peter actually is being who he really is. And Jesus sees him and Peter knows that Jesus sees him. Now, I don't know if you've had that moment where you realize who you really are. I don't know if you've ever lied and then like lied four more times to try to cover it. You've gossiped about someone and then they find out. You just, you just been a person that you never thought that you would be and, and you find yourself like, what am I doing? But you know, right in that moment is I think the moment Peter was in, he recognized who he really was. And if you've had that moment with yourself, you just know the pit in your stomach that comes when you recognize I am not who I claim to be. I cannot. And here I am and it's not my circumstances. It's not, I can't blame anyone else. It's something I've done myself. Guys, that's what sin is, that's what sin does. So fast forward the story, Jesus dies on the cross, he's resurrected. It's also confusing. The women are like, hey, we saw Jesus, the disciples aren't sure. It's like maybe Jesus' spiritual body looked different because it seemed like sometimes people had a hard time recognizing who he was or he kept it from them, but he's kind of made some appearances. But all of it is still very confusing. And so Peter goes back to what he already knows and he's back fishing again. In John chapter 21, he's out on a boat again, fishing all night, probably trying to make a little money. I wonder if he looked with his friends and was like, what just happened? What is going on? And in this moment, in John chapter 21, it says Jesus stood on the shore in verse four, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And so he calls out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. I mean, this is so similar to Luke chapter five. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple said to Peter, whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he threw off his coat and he jumped in the water. He started swimming to Jesus. And he left his friends to bring in all the fish. Rude, but he did. So I think about this moment. Remember the last moment that Peter had with Jesus? And I've prayed about it and I've thought about it. I'm like, what would, go, what would be going through Peter's mind in this moment when Jesus, like he knows Jesus is reaching out and being like, hey, you guys want to have breakfast? 
And in Middle Eastern, like in that time, extending the meal was saying, we're like family. If I'm extending a meal time with you, we're good. And I wonder if in that moment, Peter just like, I've prayed about it and I've thought about it. And I'm like, if I was Peter in that moment when Jesus is calling out to me, providing for me, showing me grace, I would just be like, he still likes me. That's, a, that's, a, that's what I would feel like. He still likes me. Like all that I've done and all that I am, he still brings grace. And then what Jesus does, he doesn't actually ignore what has happened. And that's another sermon for another day, but he reinstates Peter. For every time that Peter disowned him, he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? He reinstates his calling. He puts him back on that path. He does not ignore it. He doesn't act like it didn't happen. He doesn't shame him, but he does restore him. You see, Jesus models for us what it looks like to be full of grace and full of truth. Grace is unmerited love, but it is not unchallenged behavior. And if your Jesus looks like all the preferences and all the likes and all the opinions you already have, and that's what it means for you to follow Jesus, then I just want to just respectfully invite you to ask the question, what does it look like for you to be challenged in your relationship with Jesus about the way that you are loving, about the way that you are living? But for those of you who right now are just like feeling all that I've shared about that, that distance and that sense of like, I just, I don't know. Like, I want you to say that this Jesus will never distance himself from you. He never stops accepting. He never stops inviting. He never stops knocking. He's always there no matter how far you've come or how far you've gone or how lost you feel. He's always there accepting. And he's calling us in our own belief, in our own relationships, in our own love to also be people who are striving to be full of grace and full of truth, to extend relationship, even to those that we don't like, to extend truth and live in the reality as God states it, to not believe the lie that pretending like all of our preferences matching up is the same thing as connection, as vulnerability, as love. A couple weeks ago, as I was preparing this message, I was challenged by myself. I'm just like, okay, God, what are you doing in my life? If I think about these arrows full of grace, full of truth, and I put a name under there, a challenging name. Somebody in my life is challenging. Don't look at them right now. They'll know. Look at me. Okay, so I put that name there, and I'm like, how am I doing at abounding in grace with this person? And how am I doing at abounding in truth with this person. And I had a person in my mind and I was real sure that it was time to abound in truth. And I just felt the spirit of God ask me, Nicole, are you abounding in grace to this person? And I thought, no, no, I'm not. Like I have withdrawn. I have become a little distant as a way to show my disapproval. And I felt so challenged by the spirit of God to just be like, call that per- like call them on the phone and encourage them and affirm them and be with them. And you know what? That relationship has warmed up so much in the last month. And maybe for you, it's the other direction. You just have been like peacekeeping and you're just like, mm, I'm not going to say anything, but you're so challenged by the idea. And guess what guys? It's not always going to work out. These relationships aren't always gonna work out. That's not the point. The point is to be a person of integrity who says, Jesus has called me to abound in grace and truth. And I'm gonna abound in grace and truth. And you may need a loved one in your life. You may wanna ask them, how do you think I'm doing with this? Because a lot of times the people closest to us can actually help challenge us to be better. 
So as we wrap up today, I want to share this last thought. There is nothing, there is no better news than to know that we are deeply flawed and fully loved by God. There's no better news than to live in the reality of our flaws and our failings and to know that we're loved. And that's the place where we can actually grow. So in a moment, we're going to come to communion. What an incredible day to celebrate a baptism and then to celebrate communion together. Communion was instituted at that meal where Jesus said, when we eat together, I'm going to give you this sacrament to remind you that we come into relationship. Like he sets the table for us. He does all of it. And all we do is show up at the table. And when we show up at the table, it is just this opportunity to be reinstated into relationship and life with Christ. And it is so, so good. So would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for just the humanness of the gospels. Jesus, thank you that you put on flesh and made your dwelling among us, that you modeled and you showed us what it looks like to love, to abound in grace, abound in truth. And Lord, we're, we're never going to do it perfectly and we're going to keep messing up, but you've called us to a life, to a vision, to a perspective where we get to live as Jesus lived. And so Father, right now, as we approach the table, as we get ready for this, Lord, we thank you for your grace that never runs out. And we thank you for your truth that isn't, isn't like shifting sands, but is actually a solid rock on which we can build our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.